Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling and ready to go back into the upside down is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, man. How's it going? It's good. It's so good. I am excited. I am, I'm, I'm just giddy. This is lots of fun. Welcome to our official podcast second season, the winter years, I guess, the winter months as we're calling them, or we're going to figure something out or we're still working on the branding. But yes, we are kicking off our official second season with the second season of Stranger Things, or as it's officially known, Stranger Things 2. This is something that I think we had in the works after we finished the first season. We said, listen, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's get these episodes knocked out. Let's get these seasons knocked out. I think of the shows that we were watching and covering, this was the one that I think we both felt really excited about keeping on the schedule. We hope that you guys listening are as excited about it as we are because I am, I'm ready. I mean, it's been a minute since, (laughs) since we finished so let's just get right into it, as we always do. And we'll we'll just say that this is your first viewing of season two, and my second yes. viewing. The, this is the first time I've seen any of these season two episodes since 2017. They were released officially on October 27, 2017, so just before Halloween in 2017. And I think I probably binged them all that Halloween weekend. So it's been some time, and I honestly don't remember all the details and all of the uh, specifics of each episode and what happens. So it's, it's going to be fun to kind of revisit, go through them and see what else I can pick up on a second viewing. And for you, again, I won't obviously reveal or spoil anything, but it'll be fun to, to get your thoughts and certain things from your point of view, having not seen anything after. It'll be interesting to see what you think. Mm-hmm. And again, when I watched this episode for the podcast... I got so many like happy feelings because (laughs) I absolutely want to binge this. And that's compelling storytelling. I think we've already discussed that a number of times. But I also love the fact that the essence of our show is wait, let's wait. And it just makes it more exciting. It's that feeling that I think we want to capture that we have, have tried to capture in some of our other episodes where we just were asking the questions and we're giving that time to breathe so that we can mm-hmm. ask and just reflect and just kind of contemplate. And that's what you're going to get with this discussion more than likely is questions and answers and thoughts and ideas and commentary, everything that makes that water cooler conversation the day after a show airs. And uh, I'm just so I'm so happy that we're we're in it for this one. So with that, let's get right into it. Adam, what did you think of this uh, season premiere of Stranger Things 2? Well, again, I have seen it, but revisiting it, it gave me all the feels, (laughs) the music, the characters, everyone coming back. It really was just as effective as I remember watching it years ago for the first time. I think what works really nicely here is because we did recently finish season one it's interesting to see all the actors age up a little bit here so they're a little older i think in the show chronology it's only about a year but i think in real life they might be like two years older in how they sort of physically appear but yeah it's about a year later 
It's about Halloween time, almost Halloween, 1984. And uh, the first season kind of wrapped up around Christmas time. I think on Christmas, in fact. So the last episode of season one was on December 25th. It was on Christmas Day. The camera kind of pulls out to the, the Byers family Christmas dinner. And, uh, and here we are about to celebrate another holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and appropriately enough, well, why, why don't we start on Halloween? Because yeah. any horror movie is going to be centered around, it should be centered around some holiday, specifically Halloween. Or if you're just sadistic, like Gremlins, it should be around Christmas, because right. you know, that's the second holiday that horror should be <laughs> centered around, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I'm with you. This premiere was fantastic. I thought that we got something old, something new. We got the reintroduction of past characters, which we'll get into. We also got the introduction of a couple of new characters and some mystery around that. I definitely have some questions and comments. Really just more, redu not redundant, uh, what's the word? Rhetorical. Rhetorical questions. Yeah, there got we go. it. But the overall flow of the episode really felt, it, it felt well-paced. I felt like we were getting appropriate amounts of information. We were getting reacquainted with former characters that we knew. We got just enough of some new characters that it left us kind of going, what's going to happen here? Or man, I'm excited about this actor taking on that role. I just felt great by the <laughs> end of it. I was so excited to get into the second episode. And we'll probably do that depending on how late we talk on this episode. I might just queue up episode two. We'll see. Yeah. As I have attempted to do in the past and have fallen asleep. So I'm not going to make any promises. I'll just be cautiously optimistic about that one. <laughs> yeah, this is a hard show to fall asleep to. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be. It is, though, because my body is just like, yeah, old. your body just shuts I, down. <laughs> it's like, I don't care what you're watching, dude. You're getting some sleep. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about the the familiar characters. So we get introduced to the big four, which I'm, I'm just going to refer to them as the the quartet or the big four. We know it's mm -hmm. Mike, it's Dustin, it's Lucas and Will at this point. I absolutely adore how we get introduced to them because they're all scrambling for quarters. And the tone of this sequence is so fantastic because it feels energetic. It feels like, oh my gosh, what's happening? But they're looking for quarters, like what's happening here? And then we get the big reveal of the arcade. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yeah. no 80s based show is complete without an arcade. It took me back because I, I was all about that. Now, granted, I was probably seven or eight during the 80s. To be honest, my world of arcade magic uh, was really coming from games like Mortal Kombat, Killer Instinct, Street Fighter, mm -hmm. you know, those types of games. We actually have in my town... In our city, we have this uh, this place called the Vortex Retrocade, which houses not only those types of games, but the older ones like your Donkey Kongs, your Pac-Mans, Tetris, things like that. But it's very much an arcade feel. It's $10, play all you want, including pinball. When I see this scene play out and see them all gather because they're so excited, it just gets me excited because it takes me back. And it oh, got yeah. me wanting to ask you a question. One, did you have an arcade experience like this? And was there a game that you wanted to be so good at that you were king of that of that game? <laughs> well, there were uh, three places where I went growing up to play arcade games. There was our mall, which had an arcade called Spaceport. It was this whole elaborate, it looked like an alien spaceship or more like a ship out of like a sci-fi movie. And so there were like these various 
tubes coming down it'd be like port 15 or whatever it just it made you feel and like the lighting was all really dark and with uh like blue lights everywhere there were like flashing lights so anyway it was made to feel like you're on like a ship from the movie aliens or something but uh that was a a great place to go in the mall that was the biggest one and then there was a smaller arcade in our town which i could ride my bike to and i would meet my friends just like this i mean that's what's so great about this is it's so similar to my small town experience growing up where we would just ride our bikes at night, no helmets, <laughs> with a handful or a pocket full of quarters. And I had this one friend who would somehow always have a full $10 roll of quarters with him. And I would always be so jealous because I was the kid with like maybe 150 or two bucks in quarters. And I was, you know, it didn't last very long. <laughs> so yeah, he would, he would always have a full $10 roll. And that was a lot back then. I mean, back in the yeah. 80s or even the yeah, early absolutely. 90s, it was a lot of money in quarters. There were a few games that I loved. Speaking of Aliens, there was an Aliens arcade game that I, I thought was amazing. I loved the T2 pinball, Terminator yes. 2 pinball. That was great. Yes. And I loved classic games, of course, like Pac-Man as well. Going back to this scene, though, what I think works so well is it really mirrors the opening scene in the first episode of the first season where they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, this is sort of the equivalent where they were just as excited and full of energy and life was ahead of them. Anything was possible in that opening scene where they were playing D&D and they all had to like scramble to get home afterwards. This feels very much like that. And I think some of the music was even reused here. It's just like Nothing is more important to them at this stage in their in their young lives than getting to that arcade and in this case primarily playing Dragon's Lair. That's the game that they seem to be the most obsessed with. But they obviously are very good at, at any number of games. So yeah, it's it, it was a really great way to open this episode in this whole season because arcades were a huge part of our generation growing up. Yes, we had consoles and we were starting to get, we had Atari and Nintendo and Sega, but there was still something about that communal experience of going to an arcade and putting those quarters in the machine that you really had to pick and choose. Like, how am I going to spend my money? What's what's the most bang for my buck? <laughs> and Dustin right. even says something like, oh, this is such a, a ripoff, you know, because it, it kills him so quickly. And I think that's that's the key is like, yeah, you always wanted to find that game where you could play on a quarter for like five minutes and not die. <laughs> and yeah. that's that's what I think that that's what adds sort of some level of excitement about playing in an arcade. Like you mentioned mm-hmm. that one where you pay ten dollars and you can play whatever you want. That's probably a lot of fun, but there isn't that same thrill of like, oh, I gotta put another quarter in. Oh no, I'm all out of quarters. Okay, I guess I'm done. You know, there's something about that. Yeah, I think you lose that sense of urgency yeah. when it comes to that because you are using that one quarter. And I know for a while at the retrocade that I mentioned, everything but the pinball machines was free play. So sometimes I would go in there and I'd pop some quarters in and I would see how far I could get on a ball. By the way, Terminator 2 was one of them, still is there. There's a new Jurassic Park uh, pinball game that's pretty fantastic. I particularly liked pinball because especially the simpler games, because it was really just about the number and you would get bonuses and things like that. And I I like the storytelling of some of the more advanced games. Like if you get through a certain ramp, you've activated the multi-ball or all these different things. It's a lot of activity though. Like it's a lot of like stimulus that 
sometimes can get the best of me. And I'm like, I don't need all of this stuff. Just give me simplicity. And fortunately, there are those types of pinball games there that do that. But you're right. When you have a finite amount of money, you have a finite amount of time and really a finite amount of time to really build that skill set. And I think that's what's so funny when we see each person gathering money and how they're doing it. You know, Dustin's like rummaging through couches just to find two quarters and he calls Lucas. By the way, their their banter in this episode, him and Lucas, is so on point. It's an advancement of what we saw in, in Stranger Things one. Yeah. You know, Lucas is bragging about the fact that, yeah, I've got like four times as much as you do. Why? Because I mowed a lawn. He's like, well, call Mikey. It's like, I can't because uh, I can't call Mike because I have to go take a shower from doing real work like a man. I mean, it's just any opportunity <laughs> yeah. he gets to just take a dig at him. And then, of course, Mikey burrows through his sister's uh, unmentionables <laughs> drawer and pulls out like all, all this money. I think all these moments with these individuals just kind of shows off the fact that, you know, Lucas is a little bit, probably the most responsible of the four, which we know. <laughs> yeah, and right. Dustin is just whatever. He's just Dustin. <laughs> and then you get to Will. He's being escorted by his mom, who I call the helicopter parent of the episode. She's definitely more sober Joyce. She's not crazy Joyce. I don't know if she's going to get crazy again in the season. We'll see. But she does seem happy, I have to say. Like in yes. this opening episode, for the first time, I feel like, except for maybe that last scene, the end of the last, you know, the Christmas scene, she actually has like a smile on her face and things are going well for her and her family. I mean, relatively, we'll get into some of the uh, the issues that Will is experiencing. But, you know, she's she seems like she's on a, a better path. Yeah. And she's not smoking like a chimney either, which I think is a very good thing to to. Although I did catch her smoking um, at one point when they were outside. Yeah. I mean, she hasn't kicked the habit, but she's not, yeah, like, she hasn't quit. <laughs> she's not chain smoking like she was I think, no. in the first season. And so when we get there, you mentioned dragon's layer. I hated that game. Like I hated it with a passion because the mechanics were so stupid. Like you would have to just, you know, move the joystick at, at a certain point. And if, if the game was glitching, it didn't matter. You would just get killed. This is one of those games at the retro K that they had that I'm so glad that it's free play because even after like playing it three or four times, even without putting any money in, I still get frustrated with it. And so I felt the pain of Luke of Dustin. Like I was with him like, dude, I get it. I absolutely get it. Stick with Dig Dug because that's a game that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. The mechanics are pretty easy and you can set a high score, but apparently that high score is not high enough because then we get introduced to this mystery person named Mad Max. Keith, I think is his name, who is probably the highlight of the episode for me. I love Keith. He's the uh, arcade employee. Yeah. Yes. Just chomping on those yeah. Cheetos, man. Chomping yeah. on the Cheetos. And there's so, there's just this great back and forth <laughs> where Mike asks, who's Mad Max? And without skipping a beat, Keith goes, better than you. And then <laughs> Dustin throws the finger at him. <laughs> I, I felt like this was kind of a lighter version of Napoleon Dynamite. This is kind of yeah, how a I little felt bit. Keith yeah. was. Yeah. He had Cheeto dust all over his teeth and it was just... <laughs> Kind of disgusting. But at the same time, when I watched this, I was like, I really want some Cheetos. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was kind of craving that, some puffs. That happens all the time. I'll watch a show or a movie and someone's eating something. I'm like, I need that right now. Whatever they're yeah. eating, I, I, it just like tempts me. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, sometimes looking at the old packaging too. Like When you look at the bags, you're like, oh man, I remember when Cheetos looked like that. And it just takes me back. Lots of old packaging that, that really kind of yeah. stood out in this episode. Uh, you had that. You had the KFC branding 
just a lot of cool stuff here. I thought the production design was really good, just the level of detail. We've talked about that in the past, but it definitely stood out. The other thing that, that we see in that scene is uh, the first kind of remnants of what we were hinted at in the finale of, of season one, which is the fact that Will is seeing visions. And I think that's what we can call it at this point. My theory was that he's actually in the upside down or everybody's in the upside down. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I think he's actually having visions and he has two. The first one and the second one show a storm. And then the second one actually reveals what I would think is a different kind of monster than we were familiar with in the first season, the Demogorgon. It actually felt like something out of Cloverfield or 10 Cloverfield Lane, this uh, this really kind of tentacle. Gigantic, you know. Yeah. Almost in the clouds. And so we're reminded, even you know, five or ten minutes in, that this has not gone away. That that this is something very interesting that we need to keep an eye on. But that's kind of where it leaves those guys for the time being. You know, it kicks us back to the next day where we then get Jim Hopper coming back into the scene. Again, there's some consistency here that I think is fantastic. His secretary continuously taking steps to make him healthier. You know, she takes a cigarette and the donut and gives him an apple. Let me just say the blocking in that part is so great because you've got this dialogue happening and then you've got her just kind of, you know, pulling a cigarette out of his hand and then he grabs a donut and she pulls it out of his hand and then she puts an apple in his hand. All this stuff that you wouldn't notice as the scene goes because we're listening to the dialogue, but man, that stuff, I want to give a lot of credit to the technical side of this episode. So much is going on that we don't really pay a lot of attention to it if we're just kind of yeah. catching the dialogue. So kudos to that. And this is the scene where we're also introduced to a new one of the new characters named Murray. And we don't quite understand who Murray is yet, but he will play an important role in this season. So uh, it's an important scene because we're seeing Murray basically trying to get Hopper to take this investigation that he's conducting seriously regarding what he considers to be a Russian spy presence in Hawkins. And I think this is right. something interesting. And it, it all revolves around what he considers to be a young Russian girl with psionic abilities, who clearly they're referring to Eleven. Right. He's obviously got it all wrong, but it's, it is interesting the way Hopper is just trying to deflect him and try to get him off the case, if you will. But mm -hmm. yeah, he, he's an important character, so keep, keep tabs <laughs> on him. <laughs> I believe he was referred to by one of the deputies as the butt-probing alien, like he was uh, <laughs> yeah. investigating a butt-probing alien, which really is... It's played for laughs, but you're right. What we see here is Hopper deliberately trying to throw him off the trail by making him sound like this is like conspiracy. Yeah, like he's just stuff. a is... like, yeah, he's a conspiracy nut. Like he believes every right. like Bigfoot and UFO. Like he's basically willing to go wherever he has to go, story wise, and it doesn't matter how far fetched it sounds, he'll go there. And clearly, yeah, he's digging. And he's getting some information, but he doesn't have mm -hmm. he doesn't have all the facts yet. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. So it's a good intro for both of those guys. Uh, it got me excited yep. about seeing what what's going to come from that. We also get the reintroduction of uh, of Steve and Nancy. Steve with his great hair. I don't think he's ever not going to have great hair. We'll just continue to give him props for that. But they're hanging out in his car, and he's trying to write a paper, I guess, for an application to get into college. She's trying to help him out. And I noticed that he doesn't really seem motivated to leave because I think he really cares for Nancy. I don't know if it's just that he's not motivated to get out of town, that he's cool with just staying in Hawkins and 
working either for his dad or at a company that his dad works for. But near the end of that scene, he tells her he loves her. And you could tell, at least I could, and maybe they're baking it, but you could tell that they really do care for each other. So for the last nine months, 10 months, they've built this relationship that is, is fairly deep for high school junior and senior, I suppose. Yeah, I would just say that it is interesting if you listen carefully to the way when he says, I love you, the way Nancy responds to him is interesting. She kind of says it in a little bit of an unconvincing manner, kind of really quickly, like, oh, yeah, I love you, too. Like, you know, like, Uh, yeah, she doesn't quite want to linger on it for very long. And I, I don't know what that is. But clearly, from the first season, we could sense that there was a little bit of an attraction, perhaps, between Jonathan Byers and her as well. So. There's a little bit of perhaps a love triangle thing going on here where she's torn between her her feelings, and they play up that a little bit in this episode as well. But yeah, yeah, I think it's a nice little, as you said, introduction to where they are now, where Nancy and Steve are in their relationship. Like you said, Steve doesn't really know what he wants, I think, other than to be with her. I think he's just at that weird stage where he doesn't really have a passion yet for something that he wants to do. But he does, if you recall, in the first season, he kind of comes from the rich side of town or, you know, he has a pool and his parents are very successful. And he clearly has an opportunity just to go work for his dad in his business at some point. And he mentions, and I'll get health benefits and all that, you know, he'll have everything you need. And he clearly doesn't really want that. I get a feeling that he wants to do something he wants to be an individual, but he just doesn't know what that is yet. He hasn't figured that out. Yeah, And and killing Demogorgons isn't probably uh, a, a job that he can aspire to. I don't see it on a lot of resumes when I interview no. people. That's like a Demogorgon killer with a nail nail spiked bat. Yeah. It's just not, not there. Skills. And, uh, Hitting yeah. Demogorgons with nailed bats. Yeah. <laughs> That scene ends with our introduction of a couple of new characters, uh, one of which we find out is Maxine, who goes by Max. We find out that's Mad Max. And another character whose name we don't get, but I cheated and looked at the cast list because he looked very familiar. And I forget the actor's name, but he was also in the 2022 movie Elvis, the Baz Mm -hmm. Luhrmann biopic. And he also has a striking resemblance to Jared Leto. And I did not think that Jared Leto was in Stranger Things 2. And he's a lot younger than Jared. So yeah, true. He resembles a young, a younger Jared Leto. (laughs) Well, right. It's 1984. So it would be a younger Jared Leto. Right. But I did catch that he was an Elvis. It's it's not a huge part, but he's, Mm -hmm. he's one of the guys that kind of helps to produce, I think, the Christmas special. Yeah. What comes to be known as a comeback special, the 68 comeback special, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the the producers in the, in the film. What his role was actually, I'll find out at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Which (laughs) definitely shorter hair and a little bit less greasy. Yeah, he's kind of the bad boy, and all the girls at Hawkins High immediately see him walking out of his car, and they're just like, you know, oogling him. They think he's cute, and he's clearly the older brother of Max, Maxine, and they come from California, so they're the out-of-towners, so that makes them interesting and exotic for that reason alone, and they're they're clearly going to play a role in this season, or they would not be (laughs) introduced the way they have been. (laughs) I would 
Yeah, I would hope so. It's like, yeah. please don't do that as a throwaway. Please just yeah. don't let that happen. Here's two random characters. Yeah. Let's just throw those in for fun. Just little uh, MacGuffins. You know, Maxine, or Max as she likes to be called, we find out, uh, comes from her entrance into Mr. Clark's. I guess it's his biology class. I, I got to tell you, Adam, I would love to have been part of this class. He makes he makes learning fun. No, it's, oh, it's yeah. so excited about his class. And you could tell folks are, you know, particularly the, the quartet there, are uh, or those three is are all four of them in there? I can't really. T- I know Dustin's I in there, and so is Mike or yeah. Mike. But I think there's a shot where Dustin. I think it's Mike. Just like light up their faces, light up when he starts talking about the human brain, and they're just so yeah. excited to learn. <laughs> <laughs> he is so excited about learning and about teaching, and it's just it's just great. And um, before that, Will goes to his locker, and he's like a freak boy now. You know, the the kid that came back from the dead, and they call him the zombie. So clearly there's some bullying going on, and that pays itself off a little bit later with Jonathan in a really tender scene. But after that, we then get our full introduction to Joyce. You know, she's still working at the pharmacy. And this pharmacy, Adam, this is this is a cool pharmacy. It can deck itself out for the holidays. Like it did Christmas, having a big nativity, hanging on the top shelf for sale. And now it's got a bunch of orange pumpkins that clearly this guy named Bob is uh, not interested in. And so we find out that Joyce has a boyfriend played by the amazing Sean Astin. And I, I, I got to asking myself, are we going to get a Goonies reference at some point? I know this is two years before Goonies is releasing i think it came out in 85 actually okay so yeah. we're close so we're close yeah. maybe maybe they're going to be watching goonies <laughs> i feel like any movie which starred these actors can't exist in this universe so maybe goonies <laughs> can't exist i don't know maybe that's a good question maybe. but um, i just <laughs> it might it is great to see sean though because he clearly as you said he's one of the many 80s actors which the Duffer brothers have brought back to play supporting characters, Matthew Modine in the first season. Now we got Sean Astin and Paul Reiser, which we'll get to shortly. Yes. Clearly the Duffers are are digging into the well of their favorite 80s movies and 80s actors and giving them parts in this season. And one fun thing to note is that both Matthew Modine and Sean Astin starred together in Memphis Bell. So that's right, they did. Both they did in Stranger Things, but they never are on in the same season. Clearly, but they also have worked together. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. what great connections there. <laughs> I like that she has a boyfriend. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. She's happy. Like she feels like for the first time she's really living again. And not mm-hmm. just stressed out all the time about money and about her mm-hmm. ex-husband and about you know her son being in a parallel dimension. <laughs> so. Yeah, just the little things, right? Those the little things. things you can get over. <laughs> right. Bob's a guy that I can really I can get behind. He's really sweet and yeah, yeah. They have a movie night, man. I love that they have yeah. movie night and that he doesn't like scary movies. So good for you, man. He requests that Jonathan doesn't pick some out. <laughs> exactly. And I, and this is, again, this is the era when you have a movie night. You got to go to the video store and pick out a few movies and hope everyone's on the same page because there's no streaming. There's no just let's sit back and decide what we want to watch. Just like I missed the arcade, I also missed that element of yeah. picking out a movie and like making that, that choice, mm-hmm. making that investment. Like, okay, we're going to watch one of these two movies tonight and that that's it. These are our choices. If we don't like one, there's there's no turning back. <laughs> yeah. There's something nice about that of like really committing to a selection. Whereas I'm sure 
like me, there have been countless times where you started a movie on a streaming platform and you get like 20 minutes in, you're like, and you kind of turn it off and try something else. And it's a little too disposable now. That's a, that's a great point you made. And, and making that connection to the arcade, the idea that you make an investment and so you stick with it because of that investment. Right. I remember clearly most Friday nights or a good chunk of my Friday nights in high school because I didn't have much of a social life. Our house and our den, we had a hide-a-bed. I would go to the video store. I would pick out, I think, two or three movies that you could rent for two days. And so I would pick out two or three movies, one that I knew and then, or two that I knew and then one that was fairly new. And then I'd pick out a couple of like Sega Genesis games. And so my, my Friday night when I exited the roller rink scene from junior high (laughs) was to, to hang out in our den with the hide a bed pulled out, playing video games and watching movies until like three or four in the morning and then falling asleep on the hide a bed. And I, I got that same kind of flavor that you're talking about where I would get a movie that I was familiar with just for a security blanket because I knew that if I didn't like this other movie, I'd probably plow through it, but I had kind of a fallback option. And I had movies for the weekend, even though I vaguely remember doing the same thing on Saturday night. Maybe something else happened where I was actually hanging out with the handful of friends that I was involved with. But yeah, those two elements, I think, create this sense of of social investment and financial investment especially if you're the one renting the movies as opposed to your parents, which my parents were at the time. So maybe I wasn't as committed to those, but Bloodsport, Kickboxer, those were always like two standards for me. Cause I was like, yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme kicking the crap <laughs> out of somebody on a Friday night. I mean, what else could go wrong with what, what else is exactly what else matters? It, it felt more like an event, you know, you were right. You were getting that you were going out of your way to go to that store to find that movie you wanted to watch that night. You paid your, $3 or whatever it was, you went home, you waited up till 11 o'clock at night to watch your movie in the dark. And that was that was your night. Like everything was building to that moment. So there is something really nice about a movie night. Not that you don't have movie nights anymore, but there's just a different vibe to it now. Yeah. And, and I just want to say that when we see that in this episode, the thing that I love the most, besides the fact that Mr. Mom was picked, that's just epic. And yes, yeah. Bob... We're friends. Me and Bob, we're friends. I don't really like Kenny Rogers. That's okay. But <laughs> we connect yeah. on Mr. Mister Mom, and he laughs the same jokes I do. The phone rings, and he tells Joyce, don't worry about it. I imagine because of the trauma, it's, it's like the trauma of poltergeist in the television. You don't, you know, you want to just kind yeah. of avoid that. But I, I'd like to believe a small part of that is, look, we're, we're locked into this. Yeah, this is Let's what we're doing. Do this, th- yeah. this is what we're doing, and you're not completely side swiped by a phone, which is something that is clearly a distraction, even in movie theaters, which bugs the mess out of Yeah, me. I mean, that phone ringing during them watching Mr. Mom is the 1984 equivalent to you getting a text message while watching a movie today and feeling yeah. that you have to look at it, even though, no, you're in the middle of a movie. It can wait. It's not urgent. You can just leave your phone on silent and check it after the movie. And I think right. that, like you said, I think Bob... And by the way, his last name is, is Newbie, and it's it's kind of a Newbie. joke, but it's Bob Newbie because <laughs> he is the new character, the Newbie, but he's, that's just his name. And I'll also add that they hint to the fact that they were friends or knew each other in high school, and so did Hopper, but I think Hopper picked on Bob. 
And I don't think that Joyce even knew his name. I think they say in high school. Bob the Brain is what Jim called yeah, him. Bob the, yeah. how's, how's Bob the Brain? <laughs> so there's some there's some history with all three of these these characters as well, and this that we're starting to to get. But I, yeah, I think Bob clearly has been with Joyce long enough at this point that she knows everything she went through. She knows the trauma that she went through as well, and understands, as you said, that that phone played a big part. That phone ringing trying to talk to her son in another dimension. All of that was very traumatic and very difficult for her to get over. So he, I think, is giving her permission here to let go, to say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Just enjoy the movie. Have fun. We're all here. Everyone's okay. So I I think he's good for her. I think he's what she needs in her life right now. And I, I mean, I like Sean Astin anyway, but I think he's, he does a great job in playing this character and, and being yeah. kind of the companion that Joyce needs mm-hmm. in her life. Right. But it doesn't negate Jim's role in her no. life. There's a scene after they leave the doctor where there's some stuff going on and Jim makes that joke. He said, how's, how's Bob, the Bob, the brain, the brain. but he makes a, you know, Jim makes a point by talking to her and saying, you know, if things get worse with Will, you call me first. And then he reiterates, call me. I think it's because he has some inside information. I think it's because he genuinely cares about Joyce. It's that interesting dynamic where your best friend is dating someone and there's clearly some kind of, when I say sexual tension, I mean, there's like the possibility of an in-depth relationship happening. Right. And we see that with Joyce and Jim. Like we know that they have history and, you know, Bob gets introduced, but he's not that guy at least in this first episode, he doesn't come across as the guy that's like, oh, he's terrible for Joyce and she would totally be right for Jim. No, he's he seems really good for her. And I don't see it as a conflict with Jim, but there's a different kind of relationship. And I think Jim also has a lot going on. I don't know if he even has the mental space right now based right. on what we've seen for a relationship. And we'll get to that later. Why? Because yeah. he has a big change in his life that he's sort of absolutely adapting to. So it's, uh, yeah, I think you're right, though. There is a a shared trauma, if you will, between Joyce and Hopper. (laughs) You know, they ventured into the Upside Down together in hazmat suits to try to find Will and everything that they went through in the process to get there. So they will always have a connection, a bond from that experience. Whether that will lead to something else eventually, that's only time will tell. But right now, they are just very close friends, and they went through something very difficult together. And I think that's, as you said, that's why Hopper still has this feeling that he understands what Will is going through. And he's invested. He helped bring Will back to life in the Upside Down when he wasn't breathing. So he doesn't want to see anything else happen to Will. He wants to do everything he can to make sure that what they did to save him, that he gets to live a healthy, happy life going forward. Yeah. And when I look at that, I think the word investment is probably the best description because he wants to protect that family. He wants to protect Joyce. He wants to protect Will. I think to an extent he wants to protect Jonathan, but those two, because Mm -hmm. of that investment that he's made, the connection that he has emotionally to those two makes perfect sense on why he says that to Joyce. I don't think he's in any way trying to get into a relationship. 
And I think part of it is the fact that, you know, Bob hasn't experienced this stuff. There's not regret or any kind of like remorse or bad feelings. It's just different. Like it's when you have that kind of trauma or that kind of experience with someone, it's difficult to really maybe share that with someone else or to say, you, yeah, you totally would get that. You know, you no, nobody's going to get that kind of connection unless you're like Jonathan and Nancy. And there's an almost like a parallel scene that happens yeah. in the school where Jonathan's coming out of a classroom, Nancy is too, and they're handing out this flyer for a Halloween party. Jonathan doesn't want to go because he's an introvert, and she gives him crap about the fact that, you know, you're going trick-or-treating with your brother, you're going to be home by eight and, you know, reading a good book. And he's like, what's wrong with that? And I'm like, yeah, what's wrong with <laughs> yeah, that, like, Sounds like a good night, yeah. <laughs> but I love the camera work here because they're talking, and the camera has this wide shot. You see Steve coming from behind. He's going to scare her. And then what you see is not an abrupt camera shot change, but you see like a pan over and then a zoom in to Steve and Nancy, and he's being really affectionate. And then the camera does a hard cut to Jonathan just walking away. And there's so much there that mm -hmm. tells me it's not that Jonathan is jealous of Nancy and Steve. His relationship with Nancy is different. I don't think he, again, I don't know, but based off of that scene, I don't see him as like, there was never a lingering on his face of like, oh, yeah, I couldn't get that. It, it very much was like the end of the last season where we had him getting the camera probably purchased from, you know, by Steve. And he and Nancy have an understanding and they're good friends. And I think there's this really interesting triangular relationship that is parallel both in those three and potentially in Bob, Joyce and Jim, which I find very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think... I do think that Nancy has some type of feelings for both Steve and Jonathan, but perhaps she doesn't fully understand how she feels yet. She hasn't deciphered those emotions, those feelings yet, but she's clearly with Steve officially. You know, they're they're going together, whatever they said back in 1985. Going steady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's still something, again, just like we were saying with Hopper and Joyce, there's still some type of shared trauma that Jonathan and, and Nancy did experience. And with Barb going missing and them trying to uncover that mystery in the first season, that was something that they shared. Steve came into the picture towards the very end, attacking Demogorgons, but he wasn't really part of their journey to right. uncover that mystery of Barb's dis disappearance. So, yeah. and that's something that also gets picked up on in this episode, which I think is smart because it did kind of mm -hmm. feel like at the end of last season that everyone just kind of was so happy that Will Byers was recovered, but no one talked about poor Barb disappearing and yeah. never being discovered. Like no body was found because she's clearly mm -hmm. rotting in the upside down. So. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I definitely wanted to hit on this. This is where we get introduced to some new people. There are two references that are made earlier in the episode. One is in the police station, and Murray is told by Jim to stop messing with those people. I forget what the... I think he says stop uh, bleeding them dry. Something stop like bleeding that. them dry. Yeah. And I'm like, what people is he talking about? And then later on, when we get our reintroduction of of Nancy and Steve, we're told through them that they have a dinner with these people with, with them and we cancel on them before like, who are these people? Then we find out they go much to my joy. We get the spirit of Barb is back. Unfortunately, she's still dead, <laughs> which we confirmed, yeah. but we find out as you alluded to that her parents 
don't know a thing. They don't know a thing about this upside down and how she was killed. So they've hired this dude to investigate because you could tell her dad thinks that Jim did a terrible job at finding out the truth when we know better. Or or not finding any, you know, basically coming up empty handed like, oh, we don't we don't know where your daughter is. So they've basically I think it's alluded to that they may have mortgaged their house or they're selling the house to pay this guy, Murray, who is a private detective. But I think he used to be a detective back in Chicago or no, he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. That's what it was. Okay. so this is what he does. Like He uncovers these types of mysteries. And so they're obviously paying him a lot of money to work exclusively for them. And they seem hopeful. They seem like they might actually get somewhere with him. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is from our point of view as the viewer and also from Nancy and Steve's point of view. This is hard because they know she's definitively gone and not coming back and there's never going to be a body, nothing. like. But they can't say anything. That's got to be so hard on a 17 or 18-year-old person to kind of grapple with this fact and to see them spending potentially all of their money to try to get answers when they know that it will never amount to anything. So it's right. it's a tough scene from that point of view. It's a tough scene to watch. Yeah, and we see that with Nancy. She goes to the bathroom and clearly she's still not over Barb being gone. I like the levity in the scene though. I like the fact that there's a little bit it definitely feels heavy, but it has moments of of levity. Like when she leaves and there's this like awkward moment with Steve and her uh, Barb's parents and he's like takes a big bite out of that chicken. He says, it's finger licking good, you know, just really fun yeah. stuff. Again, props to the production department for creating that or finding the older branding for Kentucky Fried Chicken. So cool. I, I love KFC growing up. This was like this was oh, yeah. expensive chicken for me. So I'm thinking you shouldn't be buying expensive chicken if you're mortgaging your house to find your dead daughter. But it's not me. I'm not her parents, so you do what you got to do. And if, if Murray says KFC is the way to go to save money, then so be it. But <laughs> yeah, I think that same kind of regret or that same kind of grieving echoes with Mike, too. In an earlier scene, his mom tells him they're having a garage sale. I want you to fill up two boxes with toys to give away. He is very much like, no, why should I do that? And because she's like, look, you've had a year to get over this. This isn't even strike one. It's what you did to your sister. He had his Atari taken away because of what he did with his sister. I think it was because of stealing the, the money or something or something he did with his sister. But in that whole scene, they're asking him to take stuff away. And his dad, in his infinite wisdom, as we have seen in the past, can only come up with cliche by saying, uh, Mike says something about Dustin doesn't have to do that or doesn't get his Atari taken away. And his dad says, well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it? And then he goes on some weird yeah. tangent about a baseball analogy, which I think is just completely him and funny. But at the same time, Mike's reaction is like my reaction, like, really? And especially Mike, who's clearly not a kid that cares about sports at all. Like he doesn't right. know, he doesn't <laughs> understand the game. <laughs> Or the analogy, he just looks at him like he's speaking another language, which I think is great. And that's, it just shows, again, how sort of out of touch their dad is. He's just this kind of do-nothing <laughs> dad that he comes home from work, eats, goes to his recliner, and maybe says a few words of wisdom like this once a day to his kids. And that's the extent of his parenting. Yeah. 
But later at Mike's house, we get that kind of uh, grieving extension where he's sorting through some of his toys. We see a dinosaur that makes a noise, and he puts it down and picks up the Millennium Falcon. And, of course, he's reminded right. of, of Elle. And all this stuff is kind of bringing him back to wanting to go to her little fort, her little thing that she would hide in. I love that they kept it, too. I think that's yeah. great that they didn't take that down or that their mom didn't make them take it down. It's kind of great that his parents let him kind of just have the basement as like a second room almost for his D&D playing and, and hanging out with his friends. It's kind of a great space. It really is. And watching him sort of go through that transition, it cuts to Dustin and Lucas. They're kicking it back. I think from the arcade, they've just gone to spy on Max. They realize that she is Mad Max. Uh, earlier in that in the episode, Dustin makes a comment about how he can basically seduce her with his amazing teeth, his pearly whites or something like that. Right. And again, such great banter between those two. I'm hoping we get more of that, that they just find that, yeah, these are good characters to bounce off of yeah, uh, that we discovered in season one. When they're, you mentioned that they were spying on Max and they're, you know, just like across the street from the arcade. And of course, Lucas brought his binoculars, which brought me back to the first season when he's like yeah, yeah. from nam <laughs> you know yeah so I, I just thought it was great and I, dustin makes a great comment about how like why do you even need those they're right there <laughs> like you don't yeah. need you can binoculars. tell they're yelling at each other yeah. fight. they're fighting you don't <laughs> right. need binoculars for that <laughs> but yeah like you said they ultimately discover that she indeed is the arcade wizard that has achieved top scoring on many of the of the games in the arcade so they think she's yeah. pretty cool. And I, I, this is a, yeah. the beginning of what I would say is sort of another potential love triangle, if you will, where you have two, I'm not saying they're going to fall in love, but two boys here, Dustin and Lucas, who both seem to have an interest in this girl, Max. They think she's good at video games. She's good at skateboarding. And, you know, at whatever age, 12, 13 they are, that's pretty cool to them. I don't yeah. think it's a relationship thing, more of just a she could be a cool part of our crew kind of thing. You know, yeah. they're at the age where they're just starting to maybe take an interest in girls as Mike did with Elle in the first season. Exactly. So here we have another girl. Yeah. She also has a great moment without even saying anything. They're spying on her after school. She is just kind of hanging out and they're making comments about her. And then she throws this thing in the garbage, this piece of paper. And I don't know what compels them to go pull the thing out of the garbage. Like, are they think they're going to get some clues? Like, where she lives, like who would write that down. And what it is, is it's a note that she's written to them that says, stop spying on me creepers. And I think Dustin says something like, she's good. Like she's, like, yeah, she's elite. Like she, man. she totally knew what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. The whole time. And this, that scene actually leads into our introduction to a new character. As you mentioned, Paul Reiser, he's the, the doctor. I don't, I did not catch his name. Like, does he say his full name? I don't know if they, revealed his full name in this episode yet or not but he's clearly the new government doctor official mm -hmm. in charge at the hawkins laboratory but it doesn't look like it's being controlled by the department of energy anymore there's no military personnel there's no guards everywhere they're able to just kind of drive up and walk in it seems like the level of secrecy has been dropped but that's also interesting because there's still something going on <laughs> down in the basement. Yeah. So, but yeah. that's like in a sub, sub, sub basement. So maybe they're right. pretty good about keeping people out of that area. But on the mm -hmm. surface, 
it's now a little more of just a research facility, it seems like. Right. I'm glad you clarified that because I didn't, I, I thought it was Hawkins Lab, but because it wasn't surrounded by military stuff, I thought, is this just a different building and there's a, a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist there? You know, all this is triggered by Will having that vision at the arcade, and clearly he's open to telling his mom about it. So what we find out is not that he's been keeping this a secret for the last eight months, but that he really is sharing this stuff, and it's sort of been, I won't call it normalized, but it's part of his day-to-day or his week-to-week. We find out that he's having occasional episodes that they're increasing. Before he leaves, or as he's leaving the school, Lucas has this, uh, says this great line. He says, he's always weird when he has to go in. So clearly this is something that's been happening somewhat frequently. Right. Kind of like a therapy session, you know, where you, you, yes. you don't just go once, you go every month or every two weeks for a checkup. And yeah, he's clearly being monitored for these episodes, but it's kind of being played off by Paul Reiser's doctor character as kind of PTSD, as yeah. some form of post-traumatic stress. <laughs> uh, and he uses a term like it's the anniversary of his trauma that sometimes that those incidents can increase as your body kind of celebrates an anniversary of that event. And so clearly this is not the case. We know as viewers that there's something much more <laughs> sinister going on. But the question is, does he know that? Does the doctor know that? But he's just not being forthright with his sort of understanding of the situation? That's a good question. It's one I have. And several things happen in that scene that I just want to point out. One, I love the sound design, the needle going into the arm, the blood pressure mm-hmm. and the tape on the face. Just very much a great sound editing and sound mixing in that scene. I agree. Yeah. I think it's great to see almost a comparison of two characters that get introduced in the show. You got Bob, who seems like a nice guy, and we really believe he is because we're seeing how he is with Joyce. Then you see this doctor who on the surface should be a person who cares for his patient, but we feel a little weird. I mean, that's reinforced by the fact that something crazy is going down at the bottom of Hawkins lab that he's aware of. But even before that, he opens up, he tries to do an icebreaker with the desert Island candy icebreaker I mm-hmm. don't quite agree with either one of them. I think Reese's peanut butter cups would be my desert island candy as opposed to Reese's pieces or I think he said mounds, which I think you just lost brownie points with me, sir, because that's not even a great <laughs> candy, personally speaking. Do you have a desert island candy? I do love Reese's peanut butter cups. I agree with you in that. And I think Reese's pieces might have been just a little a little nod to E.T. perhaps, you know, because of the, the trail of Reese's pieces. But for me, it's probably anything with chocolate and caramel i i'm a i'm a big fan of those two any candy with those two combinations but to be honest i've always been more of like a salty snack so a bag of cheetos would be fine i would take that in a heartbeat i'm more like keith at the arcade i just want to chow down on some (laughs) some cheetos (laughs) will you try to get a date with someone's sister in order to give information like he does i think that's that's creepy (laughs) the other thing about this scene is that I think the nefariousness of the doctor comes out because of the way in which he talks about Will's condition. Now, I mean, we've all experienced some kind of trauma in our life. And the fact is what he is speaking is a truth. And I think this speaks to the idea of where on paper conspiracy theorists kind of gets their drive, which is there's a nugget of truth that you hear and it's backed Mm -hmm. up by a lot of assumptions that I think plays itself out in the conversation with 
Jim and Joyce, where he says that PTSD stuff is real. He's not wrong. But the right. problem is, as you pointed out, that's not what Will's dealing with. Will absolutely <laughs> is having visions and they're supernatural in nature. Whether or not Jim knows that for sure, it's a way, I think, for the doctor to sort of throw them off the trail to say, hey, this is normal. It's normal for him to have episodes and you just need to ignore it. And I'm like, that's not what you need to do at all. No. And I think Jim probably, he knows this firsthand. I think he was dealing with his own form of post-traumatic stress from losing his daughter prior to the events of season one. And I think he may even have some other history as a New York police detective. And I don't know if he was in the military prior to that. I don't know if he was in Vietnam or anything like that. It's possible. I, I don't know if that's part of his character, but he has a history that was difficult. And so I think he knows that PTSD is real and it's easy for him to take that bait when Paul Reiser says that, because I think he can be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. He's having trouble coping because of everything he went through. And so I agree. I think there's something else going on here. And clearly, while they're performing these tests and having this discussion, we do get this kind of creepy shot where there's a whole bank of Commodore 64 monitors that are yeah. watching him, people watching what what's happening. So they wouldn't be doing that if it was just some post-traumatic stress they they know something's right. up and i loved seeing those commodore 64s and i paused I was like, those are commodore 64 monitors because i i had one <laughs> growing up so those were yeah. those were great little ntsc video monitors they were before they made like specific computer screens they were mm -hmm. basically just tvs that you plugged your <laughs> tv monitors you plugged a computer into watching that scene play out clearly we see isolation from will like we know that his yeah. mom is trying to comfort him as she's going as they're going to his appointment. There's an understanding that, yes, he's been sharing this, but he doesn't really feel tethered to anyone. And there's this great scene afterwards where Jonathan comes into his room. He shows him the movies that he picked, all PG, by the way, which I think today would be rated R, with the exception of Mr. Mom. That would be PG still, but most PG movies would probably fly as in PG-13 or R in today's uh, ratings. But I love that he says he wants to be friends with his brother, even though that's probably not the healthiest. I mean, you want to be close with your brother. And I think that there's a genuine love that he has for his brother, not just because of all the stuff that he dealt with, but even before that. Like, I think he was genuinely protective of, yeah. of Will even before that. And he gives him this great kind of question to kind of explain that it's okay to be weird. He says, who would you rather be friends with, Bowie or Kenny Rogers? And he follows that up by saying, when Will says, oh, yeah, obviously Bowie. And he says, no one normal ever accomplished anything meaningful in this world. And I thought that was just so sweet because yeah. it's not Jonathan just throwing him a bone or trying to make him feel better. He really does care about Will. And he says, look, we're in this. We're a team. And know that your weirdness is not a fault. Like it, it can be an asset, not a liability. And I thought that was really great. Yeah. I think he says I'm a freak and he's like, we're both freaks, you know, and that's a good thing. It's like the idea that you have to sort of own those terms and celebrate who you are. Kind of like that show Freaks and Geeks, you know, it's like you have to say, you know what, I'm proud to be a geek. Or I'm proud to be a freak and that's okay. He's sort of, his brother, Jonathan, has kind of accepted who he is and he's okay with that. And he's trying to teach his younger brother that he can do that too. Even though he went through something horrible, that he can also become his own person. 
And, you know, yeah. being just like everybody else is not necessarily, you know, that's what everyone wants to be in high school. They want to fit in. They don't want to be an outsider. But that, as he right. says, that doesn't make you special. That makes you actually like everybody else. It makes you an automaton, just a normal person that's boring. Mm -hmm. So you see how that kind of affects Will's demeanor. And mm -hmm. I like that it's followed up by a movie night and we see the four there watching Mr. Mom. And Bob just laughing <laughs> at every Bob, joke. Bob is great, and he should be <laughs> laughing because that's a great movie to laugh at. Where does yeah. Bobby keep the extra diapers? You know, it's just it's so good. <laughs> he's one of those guys that just loves life, and he just lives in the moment, and he's happy. He's just a good, a good guy. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the opening and closing scenes before we get into like questions that I have and sure. comments because yep. um, there's some supernatural stuff going on as well, and um, we can just kind of summarize those here. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Minutes. Yeah. But, of course. But the episode opens and it closes on what I consider like great stingers. We get this scene in Philadelphia of all places. We're not in Hawkins. Pits actually Pittsburgh. A, I'm sorry, Pittsburgh, but it's Pennsylvania. <laughs> sorry. Not Philadelphia. Yes. My bad. I have Rocky <laughs> on the brain for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's the other side of the state. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you, you would know better than me. I know. Pennsylvania, is, so. yeah, I, I grew up, I grew up in the middle. Thank you right between these two cities. So, so I know exactly Pittsburgh, where they right. are. Yeah. It's in Pittsburgh. We'll keep it at state level. So I, so I'm not yeah. completely wrong every time I say this. <laughs> yeah. So we're in Pennsylvania. We're not in Indiana. Yeah. And there's a robbery going on, which is kind of abrupt. Cause you're like, what, what's happening here. And we come to find out that there could be, well, there's at least one more experimental kid with a number eight, I guess would be the appropriate name to call her. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see the, of course, before the credits start rolling, she lifts her arm up to, to wipe her nose, and we see the 008. And all I could think of was 008. Like, okay, are we in a, a, a faux kind of James Bond movie? Like, is, are they going to have a 007? Is there going to be an 007 <laughs> coming up? I don't know. But I thought that really offered some expansion to this world. We're not just going to be in Hawkins anymore, that there's other stuff going on. And it just reminds us that just like in season one, we're dealing with two different things here. We're dealing with a government conspiracy of experimenting on kids a la um, MK Ultra. MK, yeah, MK Ultra. And at the same time, we have the supernatural stuff that we get from Will. And so we both begin and we end with a child from this lab or experimental right. children, I guess we'd call them, because <laughs> there's a great moment in that opening scene where whoever this is, we'll just call her eight. I think they call her Callie. One of the other people okay. says Callie um, calls her K-A-L-I, I think is how it was uh, spelled. Okay. And she ends up, they're being chased by the police and she ends up causing some debris to fall from a tunnel and she proceeds it by saying, boom. And then of course the explosion happens. I do have a question about that. Maybe I just didn't see it. That happens. And then the cop stops suddenly and like runs into something. And then he's being yelled at by another cop. And when I look at him coming out of the car of the police car, I don't see any debris like in front of them. So was that a vision or did she, did stuff actually fall? Yeah. So that's her power that she, it's slightly different than Elle's power, but she has a psychic power that, allows her to kind of get in someone's head and make them see things that aren't really there. So gotcha. it's like okay. she can in. So when she said, boom, she kind of implanted this image of 
this tunnel collapse in the driver of that car. That's why his partner gotcha. was like, what are you doing? Why did you stop? And he was so confused because okay. as soon as he stopped and you know hit the brakes, he could see that there was no collapse. So it was like a very almost instantaneous thing that she made him see, but it was enough to get him to to slam the brakes on then all the other cars you know ram into the back of his car and clearly right. it, they make their escape so that seems to be one of this girl's abilities it's possible that every kid that was in under dr brenner's care had a different type of psychic ability and maybe they weren't all the same but they all had they all exhibited some type of skill that he was kind of helping them hone. But again, how did she get yeah. out? As far as we know, Elle was the only one to ever escape. So where did this girl come from? She clearly has the tattoo, so she was part of that program at some point. But yeah, these are a lot of questions with no answers yet, at least. <laughs> yeah, but great way to kind of start the episode and then to finish the episode, we get the reintroduction of Elle in such a fantastic way. Obviously... Jim is not living in his trailer anymore. He's in an old cabin with tripwires. So we know that he's mm -hmm. protecting himself, or at least we thought he was, until we, he walks in. And it almost looks like he's exploring a little bit because the way that he approaches the cabin, it's almost like we know, he, I think we get that he lives there, but he's very careful. And we see the Eggo Waffle. Elle lives there, and she's got hair now. And he tells her... Dessert comes after dinner always. And you hear him talking to her and she's like, essentially saying you didn't call or you didn't contact me. I don't remember the word she used, but she said it's 815. And then he would say 815. And then she would repeat 815. So we get so much in that scene that we can tell that they've been together for a while. So clearly mm -hmm. wherever she was at the end of the last season, he either rescued her or she found him. He's teaching her how to be more sociable and they love TV dinners. You know, three things that I think we can all celebrate is that that's all happening, but yeah. that's how the episode ends is we know that she's safe. We know that she is healthy and that she is um, with someone who, who is caring for her in a way that, um, that we want her to be cared for. Right. Right. And keeping her protected and out of prying eyes, you know, away from anyone that might in the future want to experiment on her you know he he understands that no one can know that she's alive and that she's with him because we know what happens from the first season when the government officials find kids with these abilities so it's it's a good scene and as i mentioned earlier hopper was going i said he's going through his own change this is it he's essentially becoming a father again he's learning how to be a parent because his daughter died in uh, before the first the, the events of the first season so here he is for however many months i mean like you said we don't know exactly how long this has been going on but it's been almost a year since she disappeared so we can assume that i think the last thing we see of hopper at the end of the last season is he's leaving little care packages of egos in like a little box in the forest so whether or not he was just hoping that she was alive out there and would find them or whether he knew and that they would eventually be reunited. I'm not sure, but clearly somewhere along the line, they met up and here they are. And they're, they've kind of formed a little family unit in a remote cabin in the woods. Yeah. Different cabin in the woods than the one we know about from 
from good yeah. cin- cinema, but <laughs> at least so far it may turn into that, but I hope not. The other thing I liked about that scene as it ended is that great pan out shot. It was very reminiscent of the season finale of season one of panning out from dinner into the, the street. Obviously it didn't go that far out, but I thought that was kind of cool that yeah, it was it's a nice, really kind of yeah, giving us a little nice familiarity parallel. like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of that going on in this episode, mm-hmm. and uh, and that that really ends it uh, for the season premiere, which again tops. I think it's it's great. Makes me want to just dive in immediately to the next episode. Before we wrap up, I I want to just kind of throw out some comments, some questions, things that sure. that yeah. came up. You know, we've got that scene where the doctor goes downstairs and they're basically flamethrowing what looks like the creature. I don't know if that's the same room that we were familiar with from the first season. Kind of assume that it is, but it looks like they're just sort of destroying it bits at a time. Don't know if that's what's happening. So that was kind of interesting. So without saying anything, any spoiling anything, I'll just say that I think what we're supposed to take away from this first episode is that that is the same rift or gate that was opened up originally, but it's mostly closed now. But things keep sort of trying to kind of break through. So they have to essentially, using fire, burn it or burn anything that tries to slip through daily to make sure that it doesn't keep trying to breach the gate. Whatever's on the other side, you know, right. whenever it, it attempts, it makes that, that attempt. And it also looks as though they've really kind of quarantine that section of the basement where the gate is so there's like a big decontamination area that you have to go through before you even can get close to it so they've put up a number of security measures to ensure that a that nothing gets through the gate but if it does that it doesn't get very far they have contingencies in place to ensure that nothing will ever again get out Uh, it's a containment situation they're containing the danger because they don't know how to close it permanently. So it's all about just making sure nothing happens. Yeah. Well, it's intriguing to say the least. And yeah, and that yeah. Uh, at the very least that and Will's vision are a clear reminder that the upside down is still very active. Right. And if there are other gates, obviously we'll, we'll probably find them as the season goes on and other potential creatures. <laughs> As we saw. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is I'm, yeah. and I mentioned this earlier is just kind of metaphor, metaphorically, really speaking, without asking for an answer is, is this a new creature? Is this a, is that Demogorgon that we knew? Is this an offshoot of that? Or is this a brand new creature? How big is that in comparison to what we know already? And so these rhetorical questions are just more like, I'm ready to find out yeah. more about no. that. I'm also. You'll find out. That's all I'll say is you will get answers. <laughs> well, good. At least it'll pay off. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you're not giving me all these MacGuffins. Like, you're not going to know anything yeah. about that. Not necessarily in the next episode, but you will get answers by the end of the season. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I think the other final thing was there was a quick cut. I think it was at Hawkins Lab where you have a, a technician just sort of meandering around and the computer starts going haywire. I think that's sort of a callback to the fact that. The upside down electricity, there's a creature kind of making his presence known. And I think that cuts just before Will's second vision, where the humidity starts rising as he's walking out the door. And then we see that what I would call the Cloverfield type monster. So obviously, I think those are connected. I think that's telling us that clearly the activity of the upside down is going to start to permeate more into the real world. And maybe Will is the. Uh, 
is the key to that because he indicates earlier with the doctor that people will be killed. He won't, but people will be killed. Right. So is he going to be a every, conduit that for that? Everyone else. Or is, yeah. Yeah. So that's a really intriguing line. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's yeah. Will gonna, is he going to become a bad person? Let's hope not. But uh, And there's a couple other little clues in this episode that we didn't mention that are worth mentioning. One, that this pumpkin farm, all the pumpkins have essentially rotted overnight. Don't know why. And Hopper investigates and he actually hears something off in like the cornfield, doesn't see what it is. There's also a scene where Dustin is heading back to his house. And he hears something potentially in his garage or nearby. And we then see a trash can, I think. A trash can shake violently. And there's a great cut there, too, where it cuts from the trash can shaking with a loud noise to the Jiffy Pop on the stove, where uh, Joyce and Bob are making popcorn for movie night. So there's just a lot of great cutting and transitions going on in this episode, both visually and, and with audio as well. Yeah, it's a technically superior episode or a technically strong yeah. episode. I'm hoping we get more of that. It's going to be fun to to dive into the the details of of each episode as we get through this. But mm-hmm. I, I know that without knowing the story, I know that the production value just it gets more expensive, and hopefully that means the production value just looks better and sounds better than the seasons before. And it based off of this premiere, it sounds like literally and looks like literally yeah. that we're going to get more enhanced, more fantastic uh, set design, creature design, sound design, all the all the good stuff, the technical stuff yeah. that really connects us to each episode. So I'm excited about yeah, that. Definitely. All right, man. Well, that's going to do it for us on this episode of an original series. Adam, what is coming up next? <laughs> well, episode two of Stranger Things 2 is entitled Trick or Treat Freak. And that makes perfect sense. It sounds like it's Halloween because I think this episode started on the 28th, October 28th, and maybe takes place over the course of like two days. I think it was like the 30th by the end of of this episode. So we have a couple days worth of events taking place in this episode. And so clearly they're leading into Halloween night. And there were, as we said, a lot of clues that Halloween was coming from the pharmacy having all the decorations to even Joyce was sewing a Ghostbusters costume for, yes, for yes, uh, yes. Will at one point, a little quick cut. Oh man. So yeah, we're going to probably get a Ghostbuster, Ghostbuster or Ghostbusters trick or treating in the next episode. I will not say no to that. I love any <laughs> TV show that has Halloween as part of its series. The office is yeah. great about this where you have, everybody dressed up in a particular costume that's always fun when you have a halloween episode of a tv show like who's going to be dressed up as what yeah exactly stranger thing is probably no joke or no no different so there we go yep. all right thank you guys for tuning in and joining this conversation i'm patch he's adam and we are out of here 